Hi, this is Rob Cornelis, and thanks again for joining me for another episode of the Game Face Execs podcast. At the outset of this new year, what do sales managers need most? Is it good people, better product, a larger market? I would offer what sales managers need most today is focus. Join my conversation this week with Jason Jordan, author of the bestseller, Cracking the Sales Management Code, as we dig into what a well-trained sales manager can do to exceed expectations, to develop sustainable performance, and bring more certainty in any unsure environment. I want to thank Jason Jordan for joining us today on Game Face Execs. Jason, it's great to have you, to have an author and an educator like yourself to participate in these conversations. So welcome to our podcast. Thanks, Rob. I'm glad you're having me. Well, you know, Jason, as you and I have spoken before, I am a fan of yours, your books that you've published, the articles that you've written. Uh, you have a very interesting career path because most people, they either want to be an author from day one or they want to get into business and then authorship kind of comes down like near retirement. In fact, I had a conversation with an executive not long ago who's nearing the end of his career. And I asked him, what's the one thing you still want to do? He says, I want to write a book. So it's not an easy thing to have a bestseller like you have and to be an influencer in the sales industry like you have been. So tell us a little bit about how that started. Did you intend to be a researcher and an author or did you just discover things in the sales industry and recognize that you've got to share some insights and some discoveries with the rest of us? Well, thank you for the question and thank you for the compliments along the way. So it was kind of a, an interesting path. I don't know that anyone has a path to, you know, in their career, but so I, I started out in sales right out of college, 100% commission, like hardcore sales. And then went to business school. And it's kind of funny, this was before the dot-com boom. So, you know, when I was coming out of business school, you went to banking or consulting. Those were your two choices, banking or consulting. And there was no idea of being an entrepreneur. So I went into consulting and in every management consulting firm I went to, I was the only person who had any sales experience. So anytime there was a sales discussions like, hey, go get Jason. <laughs> he, he can talk sales. And so most of my career was actually consulting. So I mean, anything, anything you can do in a sales force, right? A comp design, territory design, process design, CRM implementation. I mean, all, all of it, right? And so I was going down that path and I had respect for authors. I didn't really necessarily have the intention to be one. I mean, that wasn't like my life's thing, but but you know, when I was in sales, I was reading, and after it throughout my career, I was reading, you know, Neil Rackham was very influential. I got fortunate enough to work for him and consider him a friend now. I mean, you know, spin selling, rethinking, I mean, all the all just legendary books, great guy. And so Neil and solution selling, I mean, all the classics, right? All the stuff, Miller Hyman's books. So I respected people who could create content. And what Neil told me one time about writing was very interesting. He said that writing forces clarity of thought. And so I think that the best authors are really good at presenting complex things in very simple ways, while most authors try to present simple things in complex ways <laughs> to, make, to make it seem uh, more than maybe it is. So anyway, the way the book came about, and I'll, I'll be brief with the story because I know we want to get on to other things, but so I was at American Express's headquarters in Manhattan, and this has got to be 15 years ago at this point, and I was, I don't even remember what the project was, but we were kind of during break and coffee and stuff, and so one of the guys said, hey, I was in the room with, believe it or not, with the global head of sales of American Express last week. I'm sure he's one of 500 people. I don't know. And he said, the head of sales asked an interesting question. He said, how do I know if my sales force is any good? 
Hmm. Good question. You know, and so he went on to say that my European sales force, if my European revenues are growing faster than North American, does that mean I have a better sales force in Europe? I don't know. Like, what are the regulatory environments? What's the competition like? And you know, give some more examples. But it's like, how do you really know if the sales force is any good? And so, as a sales consultant, I felt that I should have an answer for that question. <laughs> and so, you know, it's one of those things that when you're driving around by yourself and those moments where you're reflective, I, was, I started thinking about it, and I said, well, let's look at some sales reports some management reports because you know that if people are bothering to gather and report data this must be what they think is the definition of good right we're measuring ourselves against good and so the book came out of really just this kind of interest in understanding how people were using CRM and what um, you know what reports what measurements they were using so i played with this, the concepts for a while and i put it into a, a presentation and i was kind of some folks had hired me to kind of go do roadshow stuff because they were kind of interested in, in that industry. And and I was just giving a presentation at a random conference and a guy from McGraw-Hill came up and said, hey, I thought that was really interesting. You know, here's my card. And I thought he's probably a sales leader or trainer or something, but he was just looking for fresh content. And mm. so I wrote, he said, you know, would you like to give a proposal? I gave him a proposal. They accepted it. And then I wrote a book, you know, so I kind of avoided all of the writing a book and having to shop it. And, right. and I kind of fell in, no agents were involved. You know, I kind of fell into it in all the right ways, but I did fall into it. And and it was a good experience. You know, people ask me how it is to write a book. And my only response is it's long. <laughs> you know, I, th- I think I spent about a thousand hours just writing the book, right? Not counting all the stuff that went into it, but hmm. it, was, it was a good process. It was fun. And it definitely clarified my thinking. I think that's what why people have been drawn to the book, or at least that's the feedback I get is it's very approachable, right? It's not, there's nothing engineering about it, right? I mean, it's common words and common concepts. And so it's, so I've been very fortunate that way. Well, as I've told you before, Jason, I teach an MBA course at a major university mm-hmm. and cracking the sales management code is on our readers list. It's required reading within our, within our course. My students have always benefited from it. It spurs conversation and a little bit of debate, but they walk away uh, grateful that it's on that list. And uh, it's one of the few books that really focus, at least that I have appreciated, it's one of the few books that really focuses on management. We have a lot of sales methodology books. As you know, I'm coming out with a book on sales methodology. So sales management is an untapped area. I wouldn't say untapped, but it's one that I think we're all scratching our heads constantly trying to figure it out. And I've got to ask you a couple of questions about just the origination of the book, mm-hmm. the title itself, Cracking the Sales Management Code, that suggests something's been hidden from us. So what was the thinking behind that? What did you discover that caused you to, to put that title on it? Well, I mean, so a couple of things to talk about there. You know, one, you're right. There's not been a lot of sales management focus. I mean, at the time that that book came out, it was late 2011. You know, I went on to Amazon and looked for sales management books. and They just they weren't there. And now since there've been several good sales management books that have been written. I don't know whether it's just like the time was right, or maybe I spurred some, some, some interest in the area, but that may be a little overly ambitious and indulgent. But again, understanding my career, I was a management consultant, right? So I came at all these issues from a management's perspective. I didn't spend my entire career in sales. I had, had a career in sales, but I didn't go, I didn't go straight from sa- being a salesperson to writing a book. I've been studying management issues. Uh-huh. And what I realized in trying to implement change, and, and this is, I think this is a truism, the people have come to realize, you know, if you're trying to make any change in a sales force, whether it's implementing a new training program or a new process or implementing CRM, you know, in my experience managing those projects, the implementation success always came down to the frontline sales manager. Mm. Always. Right? Mm. The frontline sales manager understood it and bought into it. 
it would at least get done 75%. But if the sales manager didn't understand it or wasn't behind it, it became a third priority and it just never happened. I mean, it's it's just a truism. And so that that was kind of the interest in particularly frontline sales management. And it, actually, the title, I'll have to give credit to my co-author, Michelle Vizanis. We were sitting, so I live in Charlottesville, Virginia. I live on kind of like an old farm situation. And here, you know, any property over five acres has outbuildings that have been converted into cottages or whatever, right? So I have my cottage out behind our house and with the guest cottage, and that's where I do my work. And so Michelle was down, she lived in DC area and we were we, we had outlined the book and we put the proposal together and so we got to have a name we need a name for it and i said well the name is kind of obvious it's focused sales management i said because that's what this is really all about is focusing sales I mean, the entire book so focusing sales management and sales people on doing the right things mm-hmm. and she said that's stupid no one's going to buy a book called focused sales management how about cracking the sales management code and that's literally where <laughs> that's where it came from. But I think to your point, it, it did crack open some ideas, kind of the standing idea that we manage outcomes, right? We manage quota. Like we, we don't manage quota. You can't manage that. If you could manage quota, everyone would make their quota, right? And so it kind of shifted a focus to the activities. And, and then since I've had many people say, look, we've been running our sales force like that for years. I can't imagine running it any other way, you know, run, focusing on the activities and what people are doing and what we're providing by way of enablement. And so I think the last 10 years has been really transformative for the sales management discipline. And again, I think maybe the time is just right. You know, maybe people have gotten as far as they can with the existing training and methodologies and all the stuff that they've poured, they've poured at the, the sales team. Now, technology has definitely changed and has been a huge enabler, and that'll continue to change in the sales force for a while. But the kind of fundamentals of management are immutable right and coaching and so well, that's kind of where, how we came to talk that. about that certainly we'd like to talk about that with you let me go back to just kind of the chicken and the egg question if i could what does come first is it great management a great sales leader or a great salesperson what would you rather have if you had to pick one <laughs> oh well i take a great sales manager every time and neil rackham would say the same thing he'd say look if i had a choice between having 10 rockstar salespeople or one rockstar sales manager every time, right? Because that gets replicated. But the question that most people will ask is, we take our, or the, the, the scenario people describe is we take our best salespeople, we promote them into sales management. And then we lost our best salesperson and we created a shitty manager. You know, it's, it's kind of like, like you've kind of done, done double damage. And so the question is, can you take someone who's not a great salesperson and make them a great sales manager? My response to that has always been, well, you, you can't take someone who's incompetent at sales and make them a sales manager because they don't know what good looks like. Right? They don't have the, they can't look at something and go, this is, doesn't, this is wrong, right? And so the, the coaching, and then there's also an issue of credibility, you promote someone who's a peer who's not respected into a management role, then you have all kinds of issues. So you can't promote bad salespeople into management positions, but I think you can promote average and better than average people that have management capability. But if I was given a choice between having 10 great salespeople or two great sales managers, I'd take the sales managers every time because I'd feel that within 24 months, we have 20 great salespeople instead of 10, right? If there's a span of control of 10 to one, which is maybe a little high, but not unrealistic. In one of your articles, you talk about a 30,000% ROI. I love that article. I, I think it came out 2017, 2018, if I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong. But could you talk about how a sales force or an organization could get a 30,000% return? Sure. You could probably still get that Vantage Points website if you look. So that's pretty good. It's just simple math. You have a choice. You can train your entire sales force of salespeople, right? So let's say you have 100 salespeople and 10 sales managers. You can train your entire sales team of 100 people and spend a bunch of money and maybe you'll get some lift. Or you could spend one-tenth of that, train your sales managers 
and I believe get an even greater lift because the research that Vantage Point had, had, has done over time has shown that sales managers are the leverage point for improving sales performance. And so it's just a simple observation and simple math that I'd rather train the 10 sales managers before I train the 10 of the 100 salespeople every single time. Because again, I think that's a dividend that's going to keep giving, right? As more people, as more salespeople rotate in, the sales managers are still there. It's a much better and much more leveraged model of focusing on improving a sales team. Well, the, excuse me for the fundamental nature of this question, but I want to make sure that our listeners and our viewers are following what you're saying. When we talk about training sales managers, are we talking about making them better salespeople themselves? Not only are we talking about training them in processes and systems. So what do you mean exactly by training them? Well, if I'm going to invest that money in the 10%, where am I directing it specifically? Okay. Well, so let's look at it this way. You know, the sales managers are trying to change the behavior of the salespeople and salespeople in turn are trying to change the behaviors of the customers, right? To obviously buy from us. And so I reverse engineer it. The question, I, I just don't stop. Plenty of people will say, here's what we need to be doing in front of the customers. Therefore, here's how we need to train the salespeople. I just don't stop there. I say, well, if this is what we want the salespeople to be doing, then this is how we train the sales managers. So for instance, if we wanted the sales team to make better sales calls, and we even defined that, right? Asking better questions or having a specific agenda beforehand, or maybe communicating that agenda before you get into the, so just specific practices of what you want the salespeople to do. You can train the salespeople to do that, or you can train the sales managers to train daily, mm-hmm. right? And to reinforce that constantly and sit down and coach them to, hey, we're going to sit down and plan this call and we're going to write on an agenda. And then we're going to, you know, you're going to email that before to the person you're meeting with and then record it or I'll join you and we'll talk, you know, that sales manager had that same conversation 10 times. And I think it's more powerful than training the salespeople to do it because the sales manager takes ownership of it and they can basically oversee. And as I said, salespeople are coming and going. Management is a little more stable than salespeople. So that investment kind of is a little stickier than than Hmm. otherwise. Hmm. So I always reverse engineer it from the behaviors you want in the field. I just don't stop with the salesperson. I take it back a level to the sales manager because if the sales manager understands and is motivated, the sales manager can make it happen. Do you find in your experience then, Jason, that sales managers are as receptive to coaching as frontline salespeople? Oh, I think so. I think more so even. I think they want it and they don't get it. There have been times in my career when we train sales managers and then we kind of train the sales manager's manager to coach the manager, right? Because it's an interesting thing. You know, you're a salesperson, you get coached. It's kind of an expectation, particularly the younger, the generation, the more they expect it. It's kind of like part of the value proposition of working for you is that you're investing in them. And so it's it's pretty common to think, oh, well, we coach the salespeople and the sales manager does that. But it's kind of weird to think that once the person's a sales manager, we don't need coaching anymore, right? We just need them to make the reports and do the stuff. And what we found is that not only when, when you engage the coach's coach, not only does the manager like it because it's an investment in them that they're not typically getting, Oftentimes, the coach's coach likes it as well. The VP of sales is like, well, I haven't coached anyone in 15 years. This is pretty rewarding. You know, I kind of like this. It reminds me of when I was, you know, had a real job managing people. I mean, all the way to the CEO. I mean, the CEO has executive coaches, right? I mean, he has people, he or she has people that are working with them to keep them honed. So it's just kind of a weird thing that we think once we take a great salesperson and promote them into a management position, then we're done. (laughs) Magic is going to happen. Yeah. Well, you know, Jason, you know that uh, Gameface, the company that I lead, started in 1995 in the sports industry. And so our clients were a lot of the teams that uh, right around your area, mm-hmm. in the D.C., Virginia area. And when we began, 
the notion that you would actually train or coach executives for a sports team was just a head scratcher to most organizations. Like, why do we need coaching, right? Just put out a better product on the ice or the field or the court and we'll sell more, whatever it is, sponsorship, tickets, suites. And I had to actually convince, if you can imagine this, this is just 25 years ago, I had to convince sports teams just as they train players, the best in the world at what they do, they probably should also devote resources to training their executive team. And now, thankfully, it's just a given in our industry of sports. I don't work entirely in sports anymore, but it is still a large part of our business. And now it's just an expectation. People, like you said, young people expect it to be part of the value proposition. Why they will say yes to a potential employer is because they, they get coaching from it, right? From that experience, that employment. And more and more managers are asking us, hey, what about us? So it's interesting, some industries are way ahead of this. And you've probably been really a catalyst to that. In other industries, there's still that same old view that really us seasoned veterans, we don't need the training, right? We don't need the coaching. Just help those young folks. So that's a really sad commentary, but it's still out there. Maybe not so much with the large B2B enterprise companies that you work with, but I still see that in a lot of small businesses. I don't don't know if you have any opinion on that. You know, I heard something, I must have been in my 30s because it really resonated. You know, someone once said, or I once read that, you know, in your 20s, you learn the trade, you learn your trade. And then in your 30s, you learn the tricks of the trade. And if you don't keep learning, by the time you're in your 40s and 50s, you'll only have the tricks. (laughs) And so it's kind of just resonated with me that you can't, at 35 or 40, you can't know everything you're going to need to know. You can't. But again, you know, some people come to that with just their disposition. Like people just like to, people are driven, they like to read, they like to try to now websites and YouTube and, you know, things that you can really develop yourself. Other people, they get to 40 and they're like, okay, (laughs) we're good. And so I think you're right that larger companies are more focused on executive development. You know, they understand that there's a, because they're focused on succession planning and things like that, whereas smaller companies, you know, it's just not part of the game because it's expensive, you know, bringing people in to deal with the executives and the time it takes and trying to find the right person because there's a lot of personality stuff that goes on, you know, at the executive level to find the right person to train or coach or whatever it is. And so it's, I mean, it's time consuming and resource consuming to continue to develop people. It's easy to get a sales training course, right? For a thousand salespeople. Mm. But you've noted in your writings that it's even more expensive not to develop your people. Oh yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you about the, back to uh, cracking the sales management code. You did a lot of research. You pulled from your own experiences. I'm sure you pulled from your own mentors, if you will, and and people that you learned from. In that research, as you were writing the book, was there anything about your findings or your conclusions that surprised you when when it finally went to print? When you began writing it, you didn't think you would have discovered this particular point or truth about sales management. But after concluding it, you had converted yourself almost. I don't really think so. That book, we were kind of like on a quest for reality. You know, it wasn't like we were, we were just trying to define what we saw around us. You know, what are sales processes? Well, how do you, what, why do you measure and what do you measure? You know, we were trying to find kind of like foundational components. You know, it's like discovering math. You you discover math like, oh, wow, one plus one equals two. That's surprising. You're like, no, we just didn't know one plus one equal two until we wrote a one and a plus sign and a one and an equal sign and a two. And then now, of course, it's obvious one plus one. And I think that's why some people gravitate toward the book and why it ends up in in universities. I've used it when I teach at university and uh, other professors use it as well that I know because I think it's just kind of foundational. You know, I think other stuff that I've done 
I've been surprised because I was really just on a quest. But in this case, we were just trying to write it down. A word that you talk a lot about, again, in your writings, and one that I is really the kind of the core word in the work that I do is the word results. Mm-hmm. And you mention that a lot in your book. And you make a very clear point that you have to be able to define the results you want in order to be a good sales manager. Do you find and have you found over the years that in your work with various organizations that that's not clearly defined? Because it seems so basic that you have to start with the result in mind before you can go to activities and tactics. But do some not get that or do some get it backwards? Well, I think people understand the desired outcome clearly, which is to hit your quota and to hit your budget or your target. But that's where a lot of people stop. I don't think there's any shortage of people knowing what the outcome is they want. I think it's a shortage of people knowing how to get there. And so, I mean, in in reality, in sales forces, you're given the outcome, right? It's called a quota. And remarkably, you're often not guided how to get there. And so that's what the work we did at Vantage Point was really all about. I see. You talk a lot about tools that sales managers must use. The one that's obviously become in vogue over the last 15, 20 years is CRM, right? I like how you kind of beat it up though. And by that, I mean, we just kind of assume that we need a customer relationship management system, right? And you talk about how that's kind of wrong and we've kind of let it get away from itself. Can you just share with the listeners, the viewers, how you view CRM and maybe where we've lost track of what its original intent was? Well, it's funny you say original intent. So I remember... I mean, I was I was a consultant in the late 90s, you know, when Siebel became a thing. And in the early 2000s, when everyone had to have it, it was customer relationship management started out as exactly that. It was like, you know, marketing customer relationship management software. Sales used it. And, and there was like a piece in, there was a module in CRM called Salesforce Automation, SFA, right? And so the SFA practices started popping up. And we don't talk about Salesforce Automation. We don't use those terms anymore. But it's funny because I think that's what has become. It's never evolved far beyond that. I mean, if you look at what the core of CRM is, most people use the way most people use it. It's a way to track opportunities and contacts, right? It's basically they, we took ACT, which is everyone's favorite software who's ever been in sales, who you know who's been around since the '80s and '90s, and they took ACT and put opportunities in it, and that's what we now have, and we call CRM. And now we have marketing automation that does a lot. So, I mean, it's, the terms are a little bit convoluted in the way that it's, it's evolved. I think what we really have is Salesforce automation. And I think if we called it that, it would be a little more clear exactly what the scope and reasonable expectations are for that software that basically is Salesforce automation. And so, you know, I, I think that people treat it as a strategic advantage. It's kind of funny because we still hear people talk about, oh, what's the ROI of CRM? Like, well, no one talks about what's the ROI of email. Right. I mean, CRM is infrastructure. You don't need to justify it anymore. You don't need to talk about the ROI of your cell phone or the ROI of Outlook anymore than you need to talk about the ROI of Salesforce.com. It's just there. The challenge now is now that everyone has it, how do we use it? And I think that the fundamental idea that it's a tool there to support better selling is lost on a lot of executives. I think it, they see it as a pipeline and a reporting tool. And in fact, I'm, if I'm cynical, if it weren't for forecasting, I don't know that a lot of sales leaders would really give a damn about CRM. But because we need forecast, we need a pipeline. Because we have a pipeline, we need CRM. Um, And then that's kind of where a lot of it stops. And again, it's a shame because it's kind of like the backbone. It's the plumbing of the sales force. 
and it's not uh, free flowing. <laughs> well, I, I, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like you to elaborate on that a little bit more. How are we using traditional CRM incorrectly in, in the sales world? Well, again, I think it's an enable, it's a tool to enable salespeople. It's not a tool to enable reporting. And I think that it's viewed from the top down, you know, not from the bottom up. And so I've talked to people over time and they've said, you know, when we started putting activities into the system and started tracking things that were kind of correlated to productivity, then CRM became useful. And, you know, using it just as a pipeline and reporting tool is not all that great. And that's why salespeople don't like to use it. Like, why would I? What I'm doing is giving this machine data. Then the machine gives that data to someone else in a different form. And I mean, they, salespeople get some value out of reporting, obviously. But it's so funny. You don't have to make people use Outlook, right? You don't have to make people use their cell phone because it's inherent to them what the value is. You have to make people use CRM because it's not inherent what the value is. Hmm. So that just tells me that we haven't value engineered CRM or Salesforce automation in a way that says, hey, how could the users of this actually find it useful? <laughs> so the, also, I'll also say that just quickly, that's overly complicated. You know, I had uh, uh, some sales operations person, if I took a minute, I could think of who it was, but said that you know, as soon as he implements a new CRM tool, he envisions himself as the mechanic under the hood of a car, just pulling out hoses and wires, you know, because it comes, they, they try to sell it so feature rich and they sell that as the value proposition. Whereas I think the value proposition should be, there are like four buttons and three reports and six things that you need to do in this, but they're the important things. And so I think it's grown beyond its usefulness. Ironically, at the same time, it's not proven itself very useful. <laughs> well, thus the lack of, or the, the low number of adopters, right, in most offices is that uh, it's, it's a constant struggle, a tug of war to get your salespeople to use the CRM. But you just explain because they don't see an inherent value. How's it going to help them make a sale? They think, as I'm, as I'm understanding you describe it, they think it's simply a mechanism to provide reports to the people upstairs. But for them, they have more important things to do, right? They got to make a commission. And that means they got to get back on the streets or back on the phone. You got to interact with customers. So they're not really seeing how CRM helps them get there. Is that a fair summary? It's very fair. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a database of record. That's what CRM has become in most sales forces. And you know, I will say that there's this whole industry, particularly for around salesforce.com, because you know, they sell a very rudimentary product, right? I mean, it doesn't, have, it doesn't have a lot of great reporting. They know this, right? They put the app exchange in place and they want people to build all these extra capabilities around what is basically this very simply defined CRM tool. And so there's so many great tools out there that do add value. They're expensive. And the things that are valuable, I mean, basically, if you mapped out what salespeople do, and thought, okay, how could we enable this? And that's where you started building CRM. You'd have a different CRM, right? Currently, we go in and go, okay, we need a forecast and we need management reporting. Now, how do we get that? And that's how you backed into CRM. It's not, here's the sales process, right? So if we have a strategic account managers, what in there is helping them manage their accounts more strategically? Are there data feeds bringing in alerts to their strategic accounts where every morning when they log in, like, oh, look, some uh, new executive at this division over here, I need to call that person, you know, or, mm. or if it's lead generation, when they log into CRM, you know, if you're, if you're pursuing opportunities, if you log into CRM, are there opportunities there? Are there leads, right? Well, I'd log in to see that. 
So if we just map out what salespeople do, identify the places they need enablement and enable that through CRM, then people would love CRM, but that's not the way it's architected. And I sound really cynical, but I've seen it so many times that in my mind, it's become reality, (laughs) uniform, but maybe, you know, maybe I'm being a little too pessimistic. Well, another another term that may get you up on your hind legs as well, uh, because it's one that I think we talk about constantly. I just want to get your reaction when I use the two words pipeline management. What does that mean? What does it mean? What should it mean in your experience? Well, pipeline management is not really what takes place. What takes place is data management in most cases. So we've all sat in these meetings where there's a salesperson and there's a sales manager and they're going through the pipeline. And what they're doing is they're updating close dates. They're updating dollar amounts. They're updating probabilities. That's forecasting, right? They're just scrubbing the forecast. Pipeline management is when you're doing something to improve the effectiveness, you know, the productivity of the sales pipeline. I mean, good pipeline management looks like coaching. Pipeline management, in most people's minds, is just keeping the data clean and making sure that as deals get later stage, they're treated a little bit differently. So I think I would use pipeline management coaching almost interchangeably. The pipeline is the nexus for almost everything in most sales forces, right? It's where we keep basically the activity, like, oh, what are people doing? They're working on these deals. It's where we keep the deals. It's where we generate the forecast. I mean, the pipeline is really the centerpiece in most sales. And when you see what meetings are taking place, salespeople and sales managers are talking about stuff in sales pipeline. The pipeline report is what they go through. But again, it's mostly viewed as a stage along the way of creating a forecast. And it's just, you know, seeing what deals are coming in the near term, which is another way of saying forecast. And it should be a coaching tool. With these best practices and perhaps some inherited worst practices, I'm interested to know if you're able to share with us, who are some organizations that you really admire for the way that they are managing their sales force and their sales system? Any, any companies that you can kind of illustrate that they're actually enabling people properly and actually exercising these principles on a day in and day out basis? I wish you'd asked me that question an hour ago and I had some time to think about it. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. Um, fair. Yeah, I mean, I think, but I see good practices in almost every sales force, right? There's no, I've never seen a sales force that I would hold up as perfect. I mean, I've worked with very, very large companies that are held up as operationally excellent companies and they are, but there's always something. There's always something. And so I've been in very small companies that were really innovative and thought about things in the way that you probably should because they had, because they had, you know, they were run by probably one or two leaders. And if those one or two leaders had a square head on their shoulders, then things went well. And you would get into a big company and there are pockets of things that are going very well. So I don't, I don't think I've ever seen one company that I said, you know, this is really it, but I've picked best and worst practices (laughs) along the way. Mm -hmm. I hear you. I mean, you probably Um, have very similar experience, I would guess. No, that's, that's fair. A couple of more questions, if I could. Someone aspires to be in sales management. Whether they're young or middle of their career, what advice are you going to give them if you're mentoring them? What should they be doing now so that when the opportunity is presented to them, they qualify, and then when they get the job, they excel? Well, two different things. To qualify, you have to be a pretty good salesperson, right? And probably demonstrate some interpersonal and probably some political skills. There's a way you get to be promoted to sales manager, which is through success. But if you wanted to think about, you know, how do I become a good sales manager? I mean, I think I probably the same advice I'd give to existing sales managers who want to become better sales managers. So if I'm a salesperson, I'd probably ask myself the question, what would a great sales manager do for me, right? How could a good sales manager make me better and more effective and more successful at my job? 
And if you think about it, it's like, okay, well, you probably spend some time, you know, helping me go through deals, but not just to scrub the data, but to point out, you know, to, to test me, to push me, how I, might I do this? Or maybe it's removing roadblocks. I mean, I don't even know, I could come up with a list in a few minutes, but I think perspective is what's lost. I think people become sales managers and they think they need to be in this headspace of a sales manager. What they really need to be is in the headspace of the salesperson and understanding what they need to succeed. And I think if a sales manager got up every day and thought, hmm, what can I do today to make Jason a better salesperson? Rather than get up and think, hmm, how am I going to get to the quota? I think they'd probably be more effective at their job. And as a, as a salesperson thinking through how I ascend, you succeed, you get the opportunity, and then you become the sales manager that you wanted to have that you never, <laughs> yeah. never did. Yeah, I think that's great advice. So Jason, as a thought leader within the sales space, and as one who's obviously been a part of innovating good practices for sales management and the like, what do you think, where's the industry going in the next five years? And I know that's a loaded question because as we tape this, you know, the economy's in an uncertain space and we've got pandemics, we've got some communities and industries that are a bit in unrest. So if you were to put that thumb out there, where are you seeing us a year from now, five years from now, what should we be doing to prepare for the future as sales managers? You know, I have what's probably not a typical view for someone who's supposed to lead thought and things. I mean, I think the change comes actually very incrementally in sales. I mean, I think we think the internet came and everything changed in a day and CRM came and everything changed in a day, but it didn't. The internet was very rudimentary when it came. The CRM was very rudimentary or Salesforce automation was very rudimentary when it came. You know, I think that what we're seeing is we're just getting better and better at what we've always been doing. I have have this idea that, that we have no new problems in sales. We just have unsolved problems in sales. And the and the data point I like to use, there was a book called Birth of a Salesman. It was written by a Harvard professor, I don't know, probably 10 or 15 years ago. And there's a great, there's a great story. I mean, it's, it's obviously a little bit academic in the way that it reads, but there's a quote from a salesperson that says, my sales manager has gone about systematizing sales. And now I spend all day chained to my desk doing reports. It's from 1927. So, you know, I don't think things have changed as much as we think they have changed. I mean, obviously the internet, LinkedIn and things, but LinkedIn when it started, wasn't LinkedIn that it is today. So I mean, I think what we're doing over time is we're just finding better and better ways to do the fundamental things that salespeople need to do, which is identify opportunities, qualify it, demonstrate value through the sales process, and then kind of shepherd the buyer across the finish line. And then if you're managing accounts, obviously the things that you do when you manage accounts. So, I mean, I don't think the the sales motion has changed in a hundred years. I think the tools we have and the way we viewed it has gotten sharper over that time. And I think that's just going to be a trend that continues. I, I, I literally don't see any um, I don't see much revolution. In fact, I'll give you another one, one final um, comment on the question. So when the internet came about, everyone said, oh, this is the death of the salesperson. Like why? Would, and this is a pretty cynical way. To th- and I can't believe I'm saying it out loud because it's so cynical. Like, why would someone interact with a salesperson if they didn't need to? Right? That was kind of the thing is uh, salespeople be replaced by websites. We'll never need to see a salesperson again. And people that I respect in the industry, was like half the salespeople will be gone in 10 years, right? This would be devastating to the sales career. And so I went back in time, I did this, uh, I don't know, several years ago, but I went back to 1999 and I looked at the Bureau of Labor Statistics in the United States and I looked at how many salespeople there were, what percentage of the sales force, what percentage of the workforce was employed in sales. And then I think it was like 2015 or 14. So like 15 years later, I went back and looked at the percentage of the workforce that was in sales and it was exactly the same. 
it was like 14.1 versus 14.3 or something. It was negligible, the distinction in the composition of the of the workforce. I mean, we need salespeople. Now, what has happened, salespeople have evolved. I think the salesperson of today is much more valuable than the salesperson of 15 years ago because they had this realization like, damn, my salespeople know as much about my products as I do because they can go to the website. You know, they can read reviews. They can. So I think the internet pushed salespeople into a different place. But again, I think it's been kind of incremental. I think we're just getting better at our craft. Hmm. Can you uh, give us any peek into what you're writing next? What topic you're particularly pursuing right now? Or is that something we'll just have to read about? No, no. Well, um, so uh, you and I were chatting about this earlier, in fact, some of it. So I wrote a book and I published it in 2017 under a pen name. Then this year I republished it under my name. It's called Sales Insanity. I don't know if you've come across that one. Yes. So it's 20 stories of the stupidest stuff I ever saw in, a, you know, in my career of sales. And so I really love that book. I'm just, Actually, I'm as proud of that book as I am of cracking the sales management code, but in a very different way. It's just like a lot of fun to, to write and, and people have been um, inspired by it. But the topic that I'm kind of intrigued with now is very timely is video conferencing. <laughs> so I think that sales certainly, but also other part, any profession who uses video conferencing in the way that we are right now, this is truly unprecedented, the amount of video conferencing is taking place for, for obvious reasons. And so, so I've got a couple of research instruments, a couple of surveys I've put out trying to understand kind of what are best practices and what we're doing right now. And how should a professional interact with the camera and the background? And, and if you have a meeting coming up, an important meeting with another executive or whatever, like how do you orchestrate that? And so, you know, in the same way that Kraken Sales Management Code was just, just kind of driven by curiosity, like, I'm genuinely curious in this. Like, this is different than we would have been doing probably before. So I think there's going to be some writing coming out of that. You know, the research is coming in, and it's, um, I think it's timely. But we'll see. We'll see what's after that. We'll see what, what other questions I can't answer. Well, that particular question about video conferencing, I think it's a wonderful area to pursue. I think it'd be very valuable. As you and I have discussed previous to this, I see a lot of bad examples of salespeople trying to sell through video conferencing and their intent is good, right? Their heart's in the right place, but their presentation, their professionalism can re- is really suspect. Um, well, I, yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not on as many, I'm not on sales calls anymore in the way that I used to be, but every morning I watch, you know, the news or the financial news kind of during the day and, and you see the folks reporting from their houses, their homes. Now, this is on national television, global television, right? <laughs> Like, I can't believe this person thinks this is a good idea. And yeah. there's, nowhere, you know, there's, no, there's no reference point. So maybe this is a, maybe I'm going to foundationally define the way you work with a video camera. We'll see. We'll see. That's fantastic. I know exactly <laughs> what you're referring to. You know, I've said to you, someone who's sitting underneath a, a ceiling fan and it looks like a helicopter's descending on their head or they're, they look like they're literally in their hallway. So granted, I like, the rawness and the authenticity that this has forced us to adopt. And I think customers like it too. It's kind of fun to talk to a salesperson when they're in their kitchen or when you can hear their kids playing in the background. It just makes everything more human, right? And I think right, there's not, not the first call, but <laughs> I, was, I was actually talking to, um, I was trying to establish credibility, but I was talking to one a professor actually who also teaches sales. And he was saying, well, that's a really fascinating idea. Like we should definitely do you mind if I take this idea and start putting together some research, do some academic research on this? Because not only is there, how do you have a first interaction where you're trying to build credibility and establish that you're the right, you know, per, but he said, but what about three months later at the end of the sales cycle? Do people still have the same expectations? You know, you probably wouldn't be in the kitchen in your first call with your kids in the background, but maybe it's endearing once you have a relationship to have that personal view. You know, it's kind of, it's an interesting 
it's just such an interesting idea that's never until people started bringing their business into their homes right. like in earnest you know these issues never never popped up so it's the anyway that's kind of where my head is now just because of the nature of my life <laughs> well i encourage my listeners and my uh, my audience to be following jason jordan see what's coming out next jason how could someone find you if they wanted to pursue more of the things that you're sharing with us sure well linkedin is the best place to probably get in touch with me awesome well we'll encourage uh, everyone to do that sure appreciate you spending the time with us it's fascinating the work that you've done and the work that you're going to be doing in the future we at GameFace appreciate the relationship and we will encourage people to reach out to you then as questions arise, not only in sales management, but even this new topic that you're now raising. We wish you the best of luck as you continue to provide great instruction to the sales world. Thanks, Rob. All right. Take care. As Jason later says in our interview, in your 20s, you learn the trade. In your 30s, you learn the tricks of the trade. And in your 40s and 50s, if you don't keep learning, all you have left is tricks. Whether you're starting your management career or you're far into it, tune in for the rest of this insightful conversation as we discuss the fallacies as well as the value of such things as CRM, pipeline management, and the right track to management from the man who literally wrote the book on the tools to get and keep you there. Thanks for being a part of this episode of Game Face Execs. If you found any of it useful or helpful, please rate or like and subscribe to our YouTube channel. I always appreciate you referring us to others as well. I'll see you next week. Until then, persuade, influence, inspire.